Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Each week, we bring you the most interesting conversations from around the media industry. Today, we get some first-hand advice on being a podcast host from one of the big names in podcast interviewing. Jesse Thorne is the current host of the NPR show Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, but many of you will also know him from his series The Turnaround, which stopped airing in 2018. On Bullseye, he does in-depth interviews with well-known actors, musicians and other professionals in the arts and culture space. On Turnarounds, he interviewed famous interviewers about their approach to interviewing, and that's precisely what we're trying to replicate today. We learn all about Jesse's preparation and approach to podcast interviews, because as many of you will appreciate, podcasts are not like your normal sit-down interview. So what makes it unique? What do you need to pay attention to as you are in conversation? And how do you make sure you get exactly what you want out of your next interview? All of that is to come as Jesse joins us on Skype after this quick message from the journalism.co.uk jobs board. This podcast is brought to you by journalism.co.uk. We bring you the latest jobs in the media and communications industry. Our job of the week is the crime and court reporter position at the Bournemouth Daily Echo. To apply for this opportunity and more, visit our jobs board on www.journalism.co.uk forward slash jobs. Jesse, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. How are you? I'm doing okay. How about you? I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to this one, Jesse. Um, I'm looking forward to finding out a little bit about your evolution as a uh, podcast host. Um, what's it like being on the other side of the mic for a change? <laughs> yeah, you know what? I don't, I don't mind talking about myself. I wouldn't have gone into entertainment if I didn't like talking about myself, right? You've got the right idea. Um, Jesse... One of the shows that you've kind of been on, which makes this kind of a little bit ironic, is that the turnaround that you did in 2017, as as the top lines shows, it's interviewing interviewers on interviewing. During that time, you've interviewed some big names who are veterans, really, in the interviewing game, really. Um, being the Brit, obviously, the one that stands out to me is Louis Theroux. I'm wondering... How did that experience, that show, kind of shaped your style now to this present day? The reason I did it is I have been now hosting my national public radio show, Bullseye, for almost 20 years. I started when I was in college. And I never went to journalism school, and I never worked on almost anyone else's show uh, I never was an editor. I, ne- I I just did my own show my own way since I was 19 years old. And I just had the thought, what if I'm doing this wrong? <laughs> like, I, you know, I mean, I've had some, had some medium success. You know, I, I have, a, 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 my show is distributed by National Public Radio, which is, you know, uh, the biggest public radio distributor in the United States. And that suggested that I wasn't all wrong, but I really wanted to check against people that I liked and admired, or at least found interesting, uh, to figure out what I should be doing that I wasn't doing. And it didn't really 
it, it didn't really come out the way that I expected, you know, like the, the people that I learned the most from were not necessarily the ones that I imagined I would learn the most from. Like I had not even really watched very much Larry King, for example. And Larry King is a broadcasting icon in the United States uh, who had a show on CNN for 20 years and was a nationally syndicated radio host for more than that. And if he's known for anything besides being known, it's for not being prepared for interviews. <laughs> you know, like that's his reputation. The second he sat down with me, and he's old, you know, like he's in his 80s. He was so vividly present with me that I understood immediately why he was Larry King. He is so unselfconscious about his own ignorance and I don't mean to suggest that he's a generally ignorant person. He's more well-informed than most. It's his job. But he, like everyone, has ignorances. And he's so comfortable with them that it makes him a brilliant interviewer and an incredible person to talk to. One of the questions he was proudest of was he had a pilot on his show who had done some incredible piloting thing. But the question he asked him was, when you get the plane in the air do you know that you're going to be able to land it? And like, on the one hand, that's like an almost embarrassing question, right? Because it's so goofy. On the other hand, what an insightful question. Like, what a deep feelings-filled, like, do you? I don't know. I'm not a pilot. Like, what's it like to be a pilot? That's a very good, specific question about what, it's act what the actual experience of being a pilot is, something that almost none of us know. You know, we might know what it's like to get behind the wheel of a car or whatever, but I, you do wonder, like, does, does a pilot always feel like they're cheating death? <laughs> so did that, did that teach you not to overthink so much then? Yeah, and I mean, in, in a funny way, the show itself did as well, because I had no plan to make money from the show, fortunately or unfortunately. I needed a project for uh, the production fellows at our office, which is sort of like paid interns. They, they do a year with us and we teach them how to do podcasting stuff. And they, they needed kind of a, a, a thing to sink their teeth into. And, you know, I wanted to learn something and talk to people that I liked and admired. And I thought it would be fun, but I just didn't, ha I didn't have any way to monetize it. And I thought, here's how I'm going to do this. I'm not going to put any pressure on myself about this. This is a fun project for fun and hopefully to learn something and hopefully to develop a utility for people who are in a similar position to the position I was in when I started in journalism or journalism adjacent <laughs> uh, work. And I thought like, I'm not going to, I'm not just not going to worry about it. You know, like I'm not going to, I'm not going to get work myself into a froth over it. Instead, I'm just going to step into each conversation with an open mind. I'm an expert of my own kind in interviewing. I've, you know, I know I've been, been my job for all of my adult life. So, and I have curiosities about people and I'll just ask. With that in mind, Jesse, like fast forwarding to today where you're still doing bullseye, you're still interviewing uh, significant people. What's kind of your process then coming into an interview? So how how much do you stress about the preparation now with that in mind? Because I'm an overthinker and I'm just curious to know how much. Before you even sat down for interview, how much legwork have you done by that point? Well, I do a fair amount of legwork. I, tr I try not to stress about it. I'm 
better than ever. I'm not always perfect. Um, I, I, I suffer from uh, very severe chronic migraine headaches and stress is a big trigger for me. So it's very important for me in terms of just my, my simple functionality uh, as a human being to manage my stress as best as I can. But at the same time, like I don't have a lot of, I don't have a lot of coping skills. So I, I try not to worry about it. I do put in a lot of time. Um, but when I put in a lot of time, I put in the time that I have. And then at the end of it, I say, well, here we go. You know, I don't, I try not to think about the, the time I don't have, or I wish I had, um, for me, on Bullseye, you know, Bullseye is a weekly show. So I'm doing a, typically a couple of interviews in a given week. I have a bunch of other jobs. Uh, so I will typically dedicate the day that I'm doing the interview to that interview. Uh, I don't have other things on my calendar. And I, I do them usually in the mid to late afternoon. Um, and I'll just sort of wake up, help get my kids to school, and then read about the person the rest of the day. <laughs> And and how well prepared are they before coming into the interview? Do they know what they're walking into or do you take some time to sort of fill them in? Here's the ground that we'll cover. Because there's an argument that you want them to be quite well prepared, but you also don't want it to be too stale and rigid. Yeah, I mean, I try and just be friendly to them when they come and act like a human being. Um, and so that they know that I'm a person who's going to talk to them like a person. I'm not... Uh, there to interrogate them. I'm there to talk to them. I My job is just to make them feel like I am a human being that wants to talk to them like a human being. The only thing I do occasionally say is if I feel like I'm going to get into sensitive territory. Um, you know, my show is an arts and culture show, so I'm not interviewing newsmakers typically. And my policies would be different were I interviewing news. You know, if I was interviewing Mike Pence, the vice president, I would have I would have very different expectations than interviewing Steve Buscemi. But um, for me, I will, if it like, well, with Steve Buscemi, for example, who I did interview recently, his wife passed away last year. And I knew that I wanted to talk to him about her a little. Um, but I also am not a monster. And I, you know, I mostly want to talk to him about her as it relates to his work. And so... I will say at the beginning of an interview, look, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll ask you some personal stuff probably during the course of this. And if there's anything you're uncomfortable answering, just let me know. This is not a live interview and I'm not here to, uh, I'm not here to stick it to you. And that's pretty effective. And I mean, it's effective in the context of the fact that I am interviewing people that I'm not there to stick it to. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> if I was, if I was hosting Morning Edition, the morning news show on NPR, I could not make that promise because if I'm talking to a senator or if I'm talking to Harvey Weinstein, uh, I would expect them to answer uh, painful questions because it is important that they do so and they're responsible for doing so uh, because they've done something wrong or because they are responsible public servants. Uh, but when I'm talking to a filmmaker, uh, if they don't want to talk about their love life as it relates to their work, that's their prerogative. They're, I'm, I'm willing to give them that. I mean, I'm, I'm looking down at my notes now, um, Jesse, and I can see a skeleton of questions all bullet pointed. Um, do you, do you do that or have you learned to sort of 
not stick so much to the script, thinking about sort of the number of questions, the order of them. Am I in, am I sort of in the territory of overthinking now? And what's kind of your your uh, take on it? I don't do that almost at all. <laughs> um, I I will usually have notes for uh, clips that I might play during the interview. Um, so if I'm going to illustrate people's work, I need to remember exactly how to set it up, you know, like what the names of all the actors in a scene are in a, in a film or the names of the characters or, or what you can't see in the clip, whatever. I, that I can't hold in my brain. I will, <laughs> this is, this is embarrassing, but like I will, if I'm interviewing like an author, I bring their book into the studio. And the reason is I will forget the name of the book. <laughs> like... 100% and I don't want to be sitting there trying to remember the 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 wording of the title of their book so that I can say it right uh, instead of listening to them. I want it just written down on the cover of the book in front of me. <laughs> and this is in the context of books that I've typically read. Uh, but generally, I will have, I will make a few notes of like subject matter that I don't want to forget to talk about. Um, so if I, if I like read an interesting thing that I'm curious about, I will note it. I use an app called Q10, which is just like a plain text auto saving text editor app. Uh, and I save it into a folder on my home computer that is also shared with my work computer. Uh, and so I just have, you know, a few notes, like typically I may be like five or six. And in my head, I have some idea of what I think the shape of the interview will be, you know, whether it will be narrative or expository, you know what I mean? Like, I will have some idea of of what I'm looking for. But in, in no strictly defined order, these are all sort of ideas in your head, they're there, you know that these are the points, but otherwise you're happy to go with the flow and go off the cuff with it. Yeah, ultimately, I want to talk to the person. So the thing that is, you know, I have a long-form show. Uh, I'm sitting with the person for an hour, uh, typically, and that, that will air, you know, somewhere between, you know, 25 minutes and 45 or 50 minutes. Uh, we use most of it. Um, and for that reason... Like, I want people to feel like they have gotten to know a human being uh, rather than been through an essay. I think I get better answers talking to somebody like that. Uh, although, you know, it is specific to the kind of thing that I do. I don't think that is the right choice for everyone. Hmm. It's interesting. Can we take an example? Because I was checking out your recent episode of, of Bullseye when you're talking to... Um, Ben Schwartz, uh, who who obviously played Sonic the Hedgehog in the in the recent movie, um, he acknowledges something really interesting right off the bat, Jesse, which is that you open with quite a a simple but very cut and thrust question, and he's just like, "Whoa, bullseye!" That's that's how it starts. It's right in at the deep end. Is that intentional? Is that something you always do? <laughs> I don't remember what was the question that I asked him. It was uh, oh, let me think. Uh, you asked him if he auditioned for the part right oh yeah do you remember well i mean that was me being curious so like a lot of times some you know typically somebody is there because they have something to promote right um otherwise they wouldn't make the time it's not always the case but uh in ben schwartz's case you know he has uh he's a, he plays sonic the hedgehog in sonic the hedgehog the movie <laughs> but he's not a famous person 
and a lot of times those voice jobs go to a famous person. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, it's Owen Wilson or whatever. No offense to Owen Wilson, who's great. Uh, but, you know, they just give it to the most famous person who's interested in the job. And I thought it was really interesting that the part was played by Ben Schwartz, who's not a famous person. You know, he's a, he's sort of a, a fast-talking energy guy that's suitable for the role. But I, I wouldn't think that somebody's like, we got to get a Ben Schwartz guy. So I was just wondering. <laughs> like, honestly, I was just wondering. I just opened the doc that was called Ben Schwartz on my computer, and I did not see any notes in it. I must have had something in there before. But um, the the main thing, the main big idea I had was maybe an hour before the interview, I, I emailed uh, my producer, Jesus, and I was like, Jesus, find some weird Sonic the Hedgehog fan art. I want to show it to Ben Schwartz and see what he thinks. To, to me, it's interesting because like people, people investing in the fan culture of Sonic the Hedgehog is a sort of parallel act to making a movie out of Sonic the Hedgehog in the sense that Sonic the Hedgehog is really... a I mean, there's been a lot of Sonic the Hedgehog games and they've tried to develop in him in different ways, but he remains like his only characteristics are that he goes fast. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and kudos, by the way, on the pun, um, role of a lifetime. I love that part. <laughs> <laughs> um, walk me through your mindset and thinking, I've got this interview. How do I even like broach the topic? What is your thinking there? My thinking is just like, well, look, I can't interview Ben Schwartz first about how everyone knows all about Ben Schwartz because people don't know all about Ben Schwartz. Some people love him from Parks and Recreation. And some people in the comedy community know what he's totally a brilliant genius. Like people, people who follow improv in LA and New York know that, but that's like 3,000 total people. <laughs> you know what I mean? So Sonic the Hedgehog is the thing that everybody will know about, even elderly people listening to public radio. Uh, and it's weird. Like Sonic the Hedgehog is weird. It's weird that I'm having a guy on because he's in Sonic the Hedgehog, the movie. Uh, it's weird that there is a Sonic the Hedgehog movie. And you might as well just start with that. You know, why not? Like I could ask him where he's from, but why does, why would someone care by then? Whereas like, if I ask him right away about Sonic the Hedgehog, everybody either, is fascinated by Sonic the Hedgehog or baffled that I'm having Sonic the Hedgehog on my show. You know what I mean? To to steal one of your questions, Jesse, from an interview you did with Louis Theroux, does your mind ever go blank and what's kind of your fallback question when you can't think what else to ask? Years ago, I read this This American Life comic book, which they still sell on their website. You can buy it as a PDF too. Like It costs like $3 or something. And I think it was Alex Chadwick... I always forget, but I think it's Alex Chadwick, who was a uh, a very, very long-running NPR host, very talented guy, uh, and brilliantly admired within NPR for interviewing, doing great interviews with anybody. And he had this rule that you could always ask the question, uh, what did you think it was going to be like? Uh, how did it turn out? And, you know, compare the two. It is two stories. You know, it's the story of what you thought it was going to be like, the story of what it turned out to be like. It is naturally narrative. And it requires reflection. (laughs) 
And, you know, This American Life in particular is built on narrative reflection, narrative reflection, narrative reflection, right? It's like, what is what happened in narrative form and what does it mean uh, in the form of, you know, re- reflection? And that question literally works for anything. Like, it really, truly does work for anything. It's always available. <laughs> How do you think podcasts really differ from other interview scenarios and what do you really kind of especially have to be mindful going into a podcast versus other scenarios the expectation is that i will talk like a person and i will talk to someone like they're a person uh because that is the expectation of the audience that they that i will have a human interaction that means that i do my best to bring myself to the show and behave as I would in real life, which means, you know, in public radio, most journalists don't do a lot of joking around with their interview subjects. And, you know, I do a fair amount of joking around with my interview subjects. In fact, a listener just sent me fan art of a Smurf that had a Smurf underneath its hat, and then that Smurf had a Smurf underneath its hat, and so on and so forth, which is something that I joked around about with Ben Schwartz. I remember that Ben Schwartz used the phrase, so it Smurfs all the way down. (laughs) Um, But like, that kind of thing is something that when I started podcasting 15 years ago, you would never hear on public radio. Um, And you would rarely hear on you know, even the jokiest morning commercial radio show. It's interesting. Do you think there's less kind of rules with podcasting? Is it more kind of a, a social situation? Therefore, certain certain things you traditionally do in journalistic scenarios do not necessarily apply to podcasts. I wouldn't say there are less rules. There are different rules. Um, I think most of the expectations of journalism in a journalistic context still apply. Uh, I still try to be a responsible journalist. Um, But I also am part of that responsibility for me is that I am responsible to the audience um, to be the person that I am and deliver the thing that they asked for when they hit subscribe, which is a pretty big commitment relative to flicking on the TV or, you know, opening the newspaper on the bus or whatever. Do you ever listen back to your podcast and just think, I wish I asked that question? If you're writing a, an article or something, if you, if you miss a question, if you miss something important, you can just get them on the phone and you can maybe save the day. You don't necessarily have that option with a podcast. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that there is also, you know, another big difference of of podcasts as a medium that it shares with radio is that it's almost exclusively linear. Um, So while you can recreate that linearity uh, through post facto editing, you know, you can, you can change it to some extent. You have some control over that. Uh, You have always have to bear in mind that you can't do anything where if the audience misses a few seconds, they're lost. Um, so you have to always either be resetting or giving them something where you can drop in at any moment. With with that in mind, when you approach like an in- interview, Jesse, is there like one key message or question that you're like, I absolutely want to ask this and therefore the structure is how do I lead up to it? I want to give people insight. And one of my favorite interviewers is Elvis Mitchell, 
who uh, was a longtime critic for the New York Times, and he hosts a show on KCRW here in, in Los Angeles called The Treatment. And Elvis's show is half an hour long, and he does some things that are not best practices. <laughs> he kind of assumes that you know about the stuff he's interviewing somebody about, for example. He doesn't, doesn't, really, uh, he doesn't really build a road behind him for people to follow. He just jumps in. Um, but one of the things that I really love and admire about Elvis's work is that he is so genuinely insightful about theme and about the real whys and hows of why people make work. But those insights are what I want to get to. And so if, I ha if I'm having stories or personal, personal anecdotes, my hope is that they are revelatory of the actual art, you know, the, the reasons behind it and the, uh, and the hows of its being made. And that is always something that I'm shooting for. Like I'm interested in the story of people's lives as well, but I, I really want to know about what their work is. Like I really want to know why they do it and how they do it. Now that said, I also often think of a funny thing. <laughs> and by funny, I mean interesting, not necessarily ha ha funny, although occasionally ha ha funny, uh, that I just want to, that I would just want to make sure not to forget to ask, like showing Ben Schwartz weird Sonic the Hedgehog fan art. And I got that on my list. And then if I get to the end and it didn't come up, I look at my list and I'm like, did any of these things not come up? Oh yeah, this one. I missed this one. Let's ask this before we go. You know, maybe we'll throw it in the middle if it wants to sit in the middle or whatever. It's, it seems to me you, you, you've got a lot of freedom there to pick and choose an order and it doesn't matter so much in which, which order they come up in. You can just have fun with whichever way the, the cards fall, as it were. Yeah, I mean, I don't do that. I, I, because I have 7,000 jobs... I have completely abdicated editing responsibilities on Bullseye to my producers, Kevin and Chewy. So um, they make the cut, and I just trust that they are doing a good job. And I think they probably know better than I what is the most interesting stuff and in what order it should go. We usually go pretty much exactly the order that it happens in real life. Uh, only occasionally do we change the order a little bit, and we would never do it if it changed any kind of meaning. Um, but I just, I'm just like, you guys are fresh ears on this. I was there. And it, sometimes when I'm, you know, leaving the studio, once the person leaves our office, I say like, Hey, I really like that part about blah, blah, blah. Or, ah, there was a part that I didn't like, but besides that, I leave it to them because they have fresh ears and that's their job that they're getting paid for. Jesse, I've got one more pearl of wisdom that I'd like to extract from you if I can which is, do you have any tips for wrapping up an interview? You know, having done many years of comedy on stage, um, I'm always looking to open and close with my best material. <laughs> you want to leave someone with synthesis of some kind. Like there's this improv form called the Herald that was invented by Del Close, who's a very legendary figure in the world of improv. And... It is a, a full show that is improvised based on one suggestion. So, you know, an hour, hour and a half of, of improv that's based on sometimes as little as a word. And the goal of it is it comes from all these different places. And each scene is typically coming from a different place. But part of what you're doing as you do it is finding common themes and common threads, sometimes literal common threads like shared characters and so on and so forth. 
And you know it's done when you find a scene or a moment that synthesizes those themes and threads. And so that is what I'm typically looking for at the end of any interview. I'm looking for the moment that has some insight that in some way encompasses what we've been talking about. Usually by the time I've been talking to somebody for an hour, I can in some form ask them, well, what do you think this means? Or I can ask them, do you think you have changed? Or do you feel like you have been successful in your goals? You know, one of those kinds of questions will lead to the the sort of reflection and synthesis that will leave the audience with the idea that they have gotten something. I think the synthesis of this conversation is preparation is obviously important, but the ability to achieve natural ebb and flow is what really defines a podcast host. Uh, for me, that probably means a few less questions taken into my next interview. Uh, Jesse, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, it was really great to get to talk to you. Interesting insights for me personally. I liked what Jesse said about ignorance because it is tempting to stick to the script precisely because you don't want to be seen as ignorant. But we've heard how embracing ignorance in a way can help you be more curious and ask the kind of questions we are probably all thinking. So my main takeaway is that there are no stupid questions when it comes to podcasting. If there are, I guess you can edit them out afterwards. Thanks to you as well at home or on the commute for tuning in. If you like what you heard, do search and subscribe to the journalism.co.uk podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Don't forget, if you'd like to jump on the podcast with me, do shoot an email over to jacob at journalism.co.uk. We're also on Twitter as well at Journalism News, and you can DM the page there. Before I leave you, our next digital journalism conference takes place on the 4th of June 2020 at Media City UK in Salford, Greater Manchester, and it would be great to see you there. Join us for a day of panels and discussions, including a workshop where you will learn how to create an artificial intelligence strategy in your newsroom. For tickets, head to newsrewind.com. That's all we have time for. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Until next time.